0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One new book that might be of interest is Alt-America, The Rise of the Radical Right in the Age of Trump by David Nywert. The seemingly sudden national prominence of white supremacists, xenophobes, militia leaders, and mysterious alt-right figures mystifies many, but the extreme right has been growing steadily since the 1990s with the rise of patriot militias. Following 9-11, conspiracy theorists found fresh life, and in virulent reaction to the first black U.S. president, militant racists have come out of the woodwork. Nurtured by a powerful right-wing media, the far-right Tea Party movement conservatives and Republican activists found common ground. Figures such as Stephen Bannon, Milo Yiannopoulos, and Alex Jones now haunt the reports of mainstream journalism. Investigative reporter David Nywert has been tracking extremists for more than two decades. In Alt America, he provides a deeply researched report on the growth of fascism and far-right terrorism, the violence of which, in the last decades, has surpassed anything inspired by Islamist or other ideologies in the United States. Alt-America, The Rise of the Radical Right in the Age of Trump, by David Nywert. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Body cameras, implicit bias training diversity. What do these three things have in common? They're all good ideas that might make police departments better, but that also entirely miss the big picture of what's wrong with American policing. My guest today is Alex Vitale, a professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College. We're going to talk about his new book, The End of Policing, which just came out from Verso. Vitali makes a case that I couldn't agree with more strongly. What's most wrong with American policing, he argues, goes well beyond the illegal abuses that go viral online. What's most wrong with American policing is that American government and society ask police to fix too many problems and do too many things. The results of this are mass incarceration and systematic legal abuses that also engender the illegal abuses. It's the basic fact that police are just plain too involved in too many aspects of American life. This is a country where the government helps private business perpetuate rampant inequality and segregation and then, shocked and dismayed that brutal conditions are foment violence and disorder, responds mostly with policing and prisons. And so under neoliberalism, we don't have a social state, but rather a carceral state. And it is the control imposed by the carceral state that allows neoliberalism to survive. Before we get on to this interview, I want to thank everyone who took the momentous decision to support us on Patreon.com. In September, we met our goal of 125 new contributors. This month, we'd like to get another 100, at least. We are already on our way there. So, if you listen to the show and like what we do, and I know that a lot of you do, please hit pause and go to patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R e-o-n slash the dig once we reach our end of the year goal of 700 supporters I'll stop asking for donations at the top of the show so the sooner we get there the happier we'll all be we don't paywall any content we depend on voluntary support from you our loyal listeners Alex Vitali, welcome to The Dig.
1: Uh, you're most welcome.
0: Your book, if it's about just one thing, and it's not, it's about a lot of things, but if it wasn't just about one thing, it's about making the case against technocratic arguments for police reform. What really matters, you write, is that we as a society expect police to do everything and to solve every problem, and government has made the role of police in society to be the almost sole solution to every problem. And as a result, we have a carceral state instead of a social state. Tell me about how your argument engages with this broader mainstream debate over policing.
1: Well, it's interesting. Um, I, after the shooting of police officers in Dallas, the chief there, David Brown, said, uh, we're asking cops to do too much in this country. We are. Every societal failure, we put it off on the cops to solve. Not enough mental health funding, let the cops handle it. Here in Dallas, we got a loose dog problem. Let's have the cops chase loose dogs. Schools fail, let's give it to the cops. You know, we can't do all that. And so this really is a debate even among police leaders, rank and file police officers, there's a real sense that the role of policing has been expanded too far. and all of this I think is tied to a kind of neoliberal turn in governance, which is the rejection in any kind of collectivist solutions to social problems, the kind of privatization of all problems, including you know private uh, open carry laws and all this stuff. We're privatizing people's security. Um, And so the only kind of government intervention that can be allowed is one that involves policing, security, prisons, et cetera. And so while part of the problem of policing is a very old problem that involves, you know, slave uh, patrols and the suppression of labor movements, there's a sense in which the last 40 years has seen this explosive increase in the scope and intensity of policing. And my book tries to acknowledge that deeper history, but then really drill down on what's happened in this more recent history.
0: And you also write about sort of shifting the emphasis um, from just focusing on illegal police abuses to more systematic legal pol- police abuses. You write that excessive use of force is just the tip of the iceberg of over policing. To which I would add uh, that police shootings are just the tip of the iceberg of the excessive use of force iceberg. But that's a that's another point. But what's most alarming is that mass incarceration has by and large been carried out lawfully. So I think what your book made me think a lot about was that we we miss the big picture when we don't put illegal police acts into the context of lawful policing, like what 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 politicians tell police to do. In other words, the worst thing police do is in unlawfully shooting and beating people, as, as abhorrent and horrible as those things are, but but simply lawfully arresting them. I mean, those arrests are the front door to the system of mass incarceration that currently has some 2.2-odd million people locked up in this country.
1: Well, first of all, even these most outrageous shootings that you're evoking here are often found to be lawful. <laughs> so even as, you know, I laugh in a very tragic sense, which is just that the the whole notion that we're going to solve this problem by a closer adherence to, to legal procedures and uh, you know, proper uh, internal uh, rule following is just ludicrous because these whole systems are based on a bedrock of injustice. And so one of the you know, points that I hope to make with this book is to speak to activists who tend to conceptualize justice or a just outcome in relationship to policing in terms of more prosecutions of officers, more successful legal challenges against officers, in hopes that this will somehow produce justice. A, those legal endeavors are rarely successful in their own terms, and B, they're even less successful in bringing about any kind of real change in the way policing is conducted, And basically, this is true of a lot of the reforms, the technocratic reforms that people are discussing, like body cameras and community policing and a whole host of procedural justice measures that are designed to try to take the bias out of policing, like implicit bias training, for instance. And these assume that somehow if policing is done in a more professional and less biased way that people will be happier with the outcomes and justice will prevail. But this is a real profound misunderstanding of the nature of the problem, because a kindler, gentler, lawfully carried out war on drugs is still going to produce massive levels of injustice at the level of individuals, at the level of communities, and at the level of racial groups. And until we address this expansion of legally authorized police power, the kinds of tragedies that we see on the nightly news will continue, but also the the intensive, invasive policing that targets primarily poor people and especially poor people of color.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think w- one incident that really highlights that point is... In Baltimore, where the state's attorney, the top prosecutor in Baltimore, Marilyn Mosby, um, was celebrated for bringing these charges against six officers involved with Freddie Gray's death. And what the Baltimore Sun reported is that Mosby's office had asked police, based on some complaints, to flood the corner where Freddie Gray was arrested in response to complaints about drug dealing, to flood that corner with officers. So in, in a sense, if what those officers who picked up Freddie Gray were doing was perfectly lawful, I mean, that's, that's, way, that's even way more chilling and I think requires a, a much more radical systemic critique than just these officers being, being bad apples.
1: You know, I wrote about that at the time in a piece in The Nation, And I said that anyone who thinks that Marilyn Mosby is is some kind of hero to be held up here is making a big mistake because these prosecutions are extremely unlikely to result in convictions, which I was proved correct on. But also, even if there had been some convictions, it's unlikely that we would ever get to the bottom of this sort of corrupt interweaving of punitiveness between the DA, the police department, and frankly City Hall. So and and what's going on in the state capitol down there and in state capitals across the country. So we you know these individualized prosecutions at the very best act as a kind of muted deterrent against certain kinds of abusive behavior, but it does nothing about the million people that are in prison. It does nothing about the war on drugs. It does nothing about three strikes laws. It does nothing about filling our schools with police and criminalizing our young people. So these are the kinds of systemic issues that need to be addressed not only to do something about abusive policing, but to actually begin to try to produce some kind of racial, social, economic justice in our society.
0: I want to talk about a few of the things that government and society charge police with fixing, but that they really can't fix, and which, as a result, causes so much pain and justice, so many problems. The first... The top thing, I think, that Americans expect police to do is to stop or address violence, particularly gun violence. And that's understandable because gun violence is um, horrific and there's really unacceptably high levels of it in this country. Um, And police obviously have a role to play if they have any role to play in society at all, is to, to do something after one person fires a gun at another. But m- so much gun violence is, is fueled by socioeconomic factors that police can have only a very marginal impact on preventing, looking at the research on things like hotspot policing. Yes, there are more effective policing strategies than others, but even those um, are really only addressing it at the margins. Can you talk about the actual ways that gun violence might be decreased and explain how the overemphasis on policing can actually cause more problems and injustice?
1: So it's it's important to keep in mind that that gun violence takes a lot of different forms. Uh, it includes uh, domestic violence incidents. It includes um, kind of internecine youth Confrontations in poor communities. It includes mass killing kinds of things. Uh, It includes armed robberies that go awry, et cetera. And one of the points I try to make in the book is that we have to understand each individual aspect of these problems to develop real solutions to them rather than saying that the solution to every problem in the society is to throw more people in prison for longer. And, you know, just look at the tragic events in Las Vegas. It was amazing. Even after he was already found dead, people were still talking in these terms about, you know, we need to call this terrorism so that we can enhance the punishments. And it's like, he's dead. These free killings <laughs> <It's surreal>. almost <laughs> always end in the death of the shooter. And to talk about more punishment is beyond ridiculous. It's an attempt, or uh, wittingly or unwittingly, to divert us from any kind of productive conversation about alternatives. Now, in that case, the main alternative that people wanna talk about is gun control. And, you know, I'm in favor of gun control, but I'm not very optimistic about success on that front. And gun control is a supply side approach. It's about cutting off the supply of guns, but we already have more guns in circulation in the United States than we have people, What we need to do is we need to look at demand-side approaches as well. We need to look at why are young people picking up guns as a tool of empowerment. We need to understand why middle-aged white guys are stockpiling guns because they're angry at the government or they're angry at their boss or they're angry at women in their lives. And we need to try to address those Social dynamics one at a time. You know, a lot of young people who are found with weapons are carrying those weapons because they've been victimized or they're fearful of being victimized by other people. And what's amazing is all this heavy handed, invasive policing in communities of color, when you ask young people, they don't feel safe. This policing does not actually work in producing safety in their lives so they continue to carry weapons and be willing to use them, sometimes tragically, sometimes because they're being bullied, but sometimes also for predation. And we need to understand those dynamics and develop solutions. Here in New York, we've been pursuing on a small scale a kind of cure violence approach to deal with young people's use of guns And we have 18 sites here in New York, and we had a report just this last week from John Jay College uh, Research Center showing that in the areas where these programs have been put in place, gun shootings, gun victimizations are dramatically down, and they're down much more than in comparable control neighborhoods where no such programs exist. This is a demand-side solution that goes out It talks to young people about what are the beefs they've got. How can we work around these? How can we put a truce together? How can we stop the cycle of this person's mad at this person because of something they did to that person over there? And how can we try to get young people involved in pro-social activities instead of just hanging out on the street, getting into beefs with people? When we assign police to do that work, What we find is that it just hardens resentment in the minds of young people because what tools do the police have to address that problem? Handcuffs, harassment, arrests, and violence. And so that just plays right into the idea that the solution to all problems is showing you're tough, being tough, using force, threatening violence, etc. And we got to break that cycle.
0: Even if incapacitation can have some um, some impact on keeping uh, someone from from killing someone else a solution that relies on the civil death of incarceration to prevent the you know physical death of, of gun violence when there are all of these other solutions available is is really no solution at all
1: well that's a that's a fundamental point I try to make is that it's It's crucial that we understand policing as the kind of most coercive, most punitive, most problematic tool that the state can use to solve problems. Now, maybe there are problems that we can't get at any other way, but that tool should always be the tool of last resort. After we have made a good faith effort and investment in other kinds of approaches that don't come with the collateral consequences of the dehumanization, the criminalization, the brutality, the long-term prospects of diminished health and uh, weakened employment prospects, etc. So let's... Uh, and diminished political participation, et etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Let's pursue the non-coercive, non-punitive measures first, and then let's see what we're left with. But what we do is exactly the opposite. We've come to frame every problem in terms of how can it be solved through policing in prisons. And this is the fundamental political challenge that has to be addressed.
0: And a, a corollary to that is that there's this trade-off, right, between public safety and civil liberties. Um, when Actually, you know, ar- arresting someone for having committed a a, a a fatal shooting, you know, it's already too late. That person is dead, and so we need to get rid of this whole idea of there being a trade off between public safety and and civil liberties. Because if we actually care about safety, um, then we're more interested in prevention than punishment.
1: Um, This is a cynical rhetorical strategy that's used to justify, you know, invasive anti-terror, you know, surveillance, uh, heavy handed policing, etc. And it's all driven by a really cynical mindset about human nature that says that basically everyone left unmonitored and unpoliced is going to run wild in the streets and commit mayhem. And this just isn't true. This is not human nature. And if you look at wealthy, well-resourced communities, there's very little policing. They are able to self-regulate behavior within the community. And so it's not because there's a police officer on every street corner. What we've got to do is address the conditions in poor neighborhoods that are producing the violence, the black market activity, et cetera and address those realities so that they are in a position to better self-regulate their activities as well. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. Hey, this is Larry Website, The Dig's new Postmaster General. Our show, which tells the stories from the front lines of American class warfare and international politics, are made possible by the listeners who support us on patreon.com. If you haven't yet, please go to patreon.com, search for the Dig, and make a contribution. Even a few books a month goes a really long way. Only through donations to our Patreon and class struggle can the best of us emerge. Back to the show.
0: I wanted to ask you about the origins of this kind of prevailing Hobbesian worldview that's the premise of all of this. You write about how the intellectual history of broken windows policing is deeply enmeshed with the sort of urban neoconservative racism and the very milieu, actually, which produced the horribly racist book The Bell Curve. Basically, it was all about this project of turning the common sense understanding of the relationship between crime and poverty on its head. Can you outline some of that history? I found it really fascinating.
1: Sure. So you're you're absolutely right. The broken windows theory comes out of that same milieu, the University of Chicago, with people like Milton Friedman, and of course one of the authors, James Q. Wilson. Uh, they're all very close with uh, the urban theorist uh, Edward Banfield, and of course Charles Murray, who you mentioned. These guys are all trying to reestablish a set of conservative principles in the face of the social movements and economic changes of the 60s and 70s. They're engaged in a counter-revolution, a retrenchment. They are deeply upset about the sexual revolution, the civil rights movement, and its impact on modern society. And if you look at the early writings of some of these people, they are essentially engaged in a pretty overt form of racism in which they look at poor people and say, well, these people are fundamentally inferior and they're incapable of managing themselves. And when we give them more freedom, in other words, when we liberate them from Jim Crow, when we liberate them, women from sexual oppression, when we give gay people the right to openly walk down the street, this is offensive. This is socially destabilizing, and what we need to do is to reestablish order. And the most pernicious aspect of this is how it fits into the neoliberal economic restructuring that's being initiated during this period. You know it's interesting the the theory comes out in 82 but it doesn't really gain currency until almost the end of the decade in conjunction with the new conservative urban leaders who begin to take office. San Francisco, we think of as a liberal hotbed, elects its police of chief, its chief of police, excuse me, mayor on a platform of getting rid of the homeless people carrying around the broken windows theory. Giuliani gets elected in 93 with the backing of the neoconservative Manhattan Institute. Same thing, broken windows theory in hand, and then begins to operationalize these ideas, saying that communities don't need investment or a helping hand or economic or restructuring or in, uh, interventions in housing markets. What they need is heavy-handed aggressive policing to help them to behave properly and civilly in public spaces. And this will bring about the restoration of community well-being. This will advance those groups. And so it masterfully empowers policing and disempowers any kind of progressive welfare state programs.
0: And this was a moment where there were there were rising murder yeah. rates in in cities which has to do with a lot of complicated factors but i think most basically segregation and marginalization in the context of the the great migration of of black americans from the south to the north um and but another piece of this context is also the urban uprisings and riots of of the times and this sort of that really pushed a lot of um liberals towards law and order there was this kind of sense of like uh well they got they got the civil rights legislation and they're and they're still upset like nothing nothing works except control
1: yes well that's the that's what i explore in my first book actually city of disorder how the quality of life campaign transformed new york politics and i look at how liberals and African Americans and other populations in the city who all vote, you know, Democratic at a national level, how they came to embrace the politics of Giuliani and then Bloomberg. And basically, this has to do with a kind of profound failing of urban liberalism during this period, that the existing liberal mayoral regimes are unable or unwilling to directly address the challenges that these cities face with the growth of deindustrialization and global competition. And so what happens is is that many of them embrace a supply-side economic program right out of the Reagan playbook where they develop massive subsidies to The finance industry, corporate headquarters, luxury real estate, et cetera. And this produces massive levels of inequality where people who are the recipients of those subsidies become unbelievably wealthy, but we create a massive underclass and a middle class that's shrinking in size and and falling in terms of its. Standard of living, and this produces a great deal of resentment, insecurity that's been fueled by the growth of mass homelessness, the explosion of the crack cocaine problem, and a general sense of physical disorder that's driven by the disinvestment in the infrastructure. So the trains are falling apart, the bridges are covered in graffiti. The, the the sidewalks are a mess. And so all like of that the combined... Actual,
0: the actual broken windows that broken yeah, windows policing never yeah, deals with.
1: <laughs> yeah, buildings in the Bronx are falling down under the Koch administration. And they don't deal with that because they, they plead poverty. But at the same time, they're spending billions of dollars subsidizing high finance and luxury real estate development. And so... When liberals and neoconservatives have the same economic program, but the neoconservatives say, and I'm going to get those homeless people out of your park, that's a no-brainer for most urban residents. And there was no left alternative that talked about how to manage globalization in a way that would produce more economic justice. And that's still a problem.
0: So returning to the, the list of things that we expect police to deal with and, and then they utterly fail to do so and cause a lot of problems in the effort, quixotic effort to do so, the war on drugs. Obviously, this has been a spectacular disaster and a failure even on its own terms. The most basic fact is just for anyone to Google NYTimes.com overdose, um, they have some really Uh, stark graphs on the skyrocketing number of overdose deaths over the last few decades. Meanwhile, while failing to keep Americans from using illicit drugs, much less dying or or dying from them, they've helped fill prisons. They've justified invasive and abusive policing domestically. And then alongside, of course, all kinds of nightmares in other countries like Mexico and Colombia, Tell me about why the drug war fails. And I guess like the more difficult question to answer is is how, how it persists in the face of such obvious failure.
1: Right. So, you know, we've had a, a war on drugs for 40 years and drugs are cheaper, easier to get and of higher quality than they've ever been. And I always say, you know, if, There's no high school student in this country that can't get any kind of drugs they want in pretty short order. Drugs are widely available. And as to why these efforts fail, the simple answer is that Americans love drugs. Tens of millions of people take them on a regular basis. Uh, When we, you know, when we, don't use illegal drugs. We misuse legal drugs. We abuse alcohol. We get addicted to nicotine. Americans are great lovers of drugs. And if they can't get them legally, then they will develop black markets to obtain them. Now, we can talk about why Americans love drugs. That's a complicated question. And I don't think we know all the answers to that, except to say that Drugs are fairly prevalent in lots of cultures. And rather than pretend that we can somehow stamp out drugs, especially with some kind of supply-side strategy, yet again, of cutting off the supply of drugs, we've got to address the harms that drugs produce, and we've got to look at how to reduce the demand. But we don't do that. We continue to rail against safe injection facilities, needle exchange programs, drug treatment on demand, etc. But there's always money for more police and more prisons to incarcerate people involved with drugs. So, why does this persist? Well, I think it serves a political function, and in fact, more than one political function. Yeah. One is that it's been at the center, as Michelle Alexander and others have pointed out, it's been at, a, at the center of an incredibly uh, corrosive and cynical politics of race in American society, going back to the earliest origins of the war on drugs. We know that in the Nixon White House, it was understood that the war on drugs had nothing to do with public health and everything to do with criminalizing their enemies student radicals, black nationalists, and civil rights folks who they could tie into drug prohibition and expand the law enforcement powers of the federal government. And to this day, that cynical politics of race remains salient across the country, But it's even deeper than that, because, of course, what's happening in a lot of rural white parts of America is just as tragic and just as unjust. And I think, once again, it feeds into a kind of politics of punishment in which social problems have to be understood in terms of individual moral failing rather than as a product of market failure. Because if we acknowledge that, you know, look at this, we've decimated a community in terms of jobs and resources, and all of a sudden now there's a big drug problem. If we acknowledge that that drug problem is directly related to disinvestment, deindustrialization, and austerity, then we'd have to do something about those things. But there are incredibly powerful vested interests who don't want us to do anything about those things, who benefit from that austerity and disinvestment. And so we can't solve the war on drugs problem until we put it into a political and economic context. And this is something that too many researchers fail to directly embrace.
0: Let alone journalists. I mean, what drives me nuts is when there are st- stories on the opioid crisis that... Um, rely on law enforcement not as sort of kind of protagonist sources, but as expert sources. Right. As if they're not at the very root of the problem in the first place. But I think what you said was very important, that this telling of the drug war story, um, one of the functions it serves is that it means that other stories about drugs in the drug war are not told.
1: That's right. It's a kind of myth-making that serves political uh, serves a political function and we see this with all kinds of issues that it's very important that the narrative be shaped in a particular way that precludes an exploration of other kinds of solutions
0: another thing that law enforcement that police spend a lot of time dealing with is poverty particularly homelessness and Mental illness. Two friends of mine, sociologists, have a new paper coming out. I'm not sure if you've seen it, um, but it finds some association between the the rising importance of of the real estate market and expenditures on policing. It does seem like there is no issue with regard to the intersection of of policing and political economy that that makes what's going on more clear than the fact that we as a society and government does not have the the funds to house homeless people and get them the social and psychological services that they they need to get off the street but have just an endless amount of resources to criminalize their presence in the street
1: You know, we've got a growing body of of research literature out there that shows that local cities, states are spending massive amounts of money on individual people to cycle them through emergency rooms, homeless shelters, jails, treatment facilities, courts, and yet never actually addressing their problem in any kind of meaningful or sustained way. We, they got research about people that uh, that governments are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a year cycling them through these systems. When we could put them up in permanent housing with support services and, frankly, a butler, and it would be dramatically cheaper and a lot more effective. But we won't do it for ideological reasons because we're so committed as a society to the politics of austerity and privatization of all considerations, that to say that we could solve this problem by expanding health care, by expanding affordable housing, by government interventions into employment markets and housing markets, that is so far beyond the political pale that no one is even talking about it. It, these ideas are completely off the table in in local politics, and so uh, until we change, the, until we kind of break the stranglehold of austerity politics, uh, we're going to continue to see all our social problems turned over to police.
0: Yeah, the whole um, notion that Republicans have some sort of principled opposition to to excessive government spending. As such, obviously recently has been totally undermined for the you know millionth time by the the fact that they are pushing tax cuts that I think will maybe like double the national debt there's always money for for tax cuts for the wealthy for foreign wars for prisons, but when it comes to
1: and the the new seven hundred billion dollar you know military bill that was just paid,
0: yeah. That, there's money for that, but paying to help a homeless person off the street on their own terms rather than jailing them, you know that that's money that's not available.
1: For sure. For sure. I mean, I always think of it this way. Uh, Democrats are accused of taxing and spending, and Republicans, they just borrow and spend. So they're both spending money, but it's actually the Republicans who tend to worsen the national debt. But either way, the resources are there. Here in New York, if we just went back to the tax code we had 20 years ago, we would have billions of extra dollars to spend on these things.
0: Or, Alex, I have an idea. We can uh, just lean harder on, on uh, civil asset forfeiture and fines and fees, and we can uh, end homelessness that way.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, Exactly. You know, the fines and fees things, even in, a, even in a place like New York, where it's not an important source of revenue for the city exactly. The way it would it be in Ferguson still, or something. or was, Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in parts of the South and other rural areas. It's still a tremendous drain on resources from communities that can least afford it. It's, it's a regressive tax.
0: Hey, obviously you are listening to The Dig Radio. As you probably know, we have started doing a second weekly episode. To keep that going, we really need your support. By which I mean your money. So, please hit pause and go to patreon.com. That's p a t r e o n.com and make a monthly contribution. We really appreciate it, and we can't do this show without our listener's support. So thank you. And now, back to the show. I want to talk about some of the popular, more technocratic reform proposals. One big one that gets talked about a lot is implicit bias training. Obviously, We should do everything we can to disabuse individual police officers of racist ideas and the outright white supremacists in the ranks have to be ousted. But you write about how it's misleading to think of racism and policing as primarily this issue of individual officers with with bad ideas. It's when it's really something that flows from policy.
1: Yeah, this is a really troubling line of thinking for me. So, you know, there is solid research that people have implicit bias. I don't disagree with that, the work of Philip Goff and others. What I object to is the idea that somehow, A, we can really do anything about it at the individual level, and B, even if we can, that it'll make any difference at all. And I just don't think there's anything to support either of those ideas that uh, that, first of all, a lot of the bias is not implicit. It is explicit and deeply held. Uh, Well, the head of the Michigan State Police just referred to NFL players protesting as degenerates. Uh, We find racist emails. We find racist posts on supposedly anonymous police websites We find racist uh, radio communications. Anytime we look for explicit racism in the ranks of policing, we find it. However, there are a lot of police who are not racist, probably most. I mean, I personally think it's almost certainly most police are not racist. And we have a growing number of non-white police officers as well. And even if we could stamp out all the explicit racism, it wouldn't really change things. Yes, it might it might save a few lives and it might add some courtesy to some encounters, but it would not change the fundamental nature of what the police are doing. You just can't have a kindler, gentler, racially unbiased war on drugs, war on disorder, war on crime, war on terror. These things are not going to produce justice no matter how they're implemented and trying to get police to, to see the person they're coming up against as a full human being uh, isn't going to change that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, just to, to return to this point and underline it yet again, if I'm getting arrested, on possession with intent to distribute charges that are carrying some psychotically long mandatory minimum, with a gun enhancement on top of that, um, that's gonna you know put me to away for some surreal amount of time. The fact that the you know I'm 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 probably like it would have been worse if the cops roughed me up um, and called me a name while they did it, even if they were as polite as can be and gentle as can be while arresting me and putting me into this pipeline, you know, where I'm going to have to plead guilty because the mandatory minimum is so extreme. It's just kind of epiphenomenal.
1: Yes. I, you know, this idea that there's any justification for putting people in the criminal justice system for, for jobs, uh, for drugs, I just don't, think that you know there's anything productive to talk about in terms of retraining or bias, et cetera, in this context. Uh, we've got to just stop waging the war on drugs. That's that's the solution. And even even in areas that don't appear to have anything to do with drugs, like like vehicle stops, we've seen some horrible incidents in vehicle stops. But what's important to keep in mind is that these are typically so-called pretextual stops, and what they're doing is they're looking for drugs. That's why they're harassing people and stopping people and searching people. Or with civil asset forfeiture for money. and And the charge at the end of the day might be for disorderly conduct or resisting arrest or something like that, so it doesn't show up as a drug arrest, but the interaction is still fundamentally about drugs.
0: So a related issue to implicit bias is police diversity. After, you know, many major incidents that go viral uh, of police abuse, there's always this emphasis on the officer being white, Um, notably not in the Freddie Gray case, because half of the officers charged, I believe, um, and none of whom were convicted, were black and in my reporting on criminal justice in in Philly, two of the most disturbing cases of, of physical abuse that I investigated, one involving a CO, a CO in the city jail and the other a police officer, were committed by black officers. And in fact, you write, most studies show that the race of the officer has no effect on use of force and that some some show actually that black officers are more likely to use force against or arrest black people. So diversity is really not this panacea.
1: <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. There's just nothing to support that idea. It's a jobs program, you know, and so I can see why, you know, black politicians and community activists might support it on that basis, you know, equal access to the spoils of, of local spending, but it's not going to make policing any better. And I highly recommend... James Foreman Jr.'s new new book, Locking yes. Up Our Own, that has a really much more in-depth discussion and and um, exploration of this issue, uh, and that will further disabuse people of this idea that diversifying the police will make any difference.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I second that recommendation. It's one of many frequent invocations of uh, of Foreman's book, Locking Up Our Own, on the show. That said all these the shortcomings of of all of these technocratic proposals, notwithstanding um, there are ways that police training could be better, and one thing that you point to in terms of problems with the way police are both formally and informally trained now is this prevalent warrior mentality drilled into officers and related to that, this overemphasis on officer safety. Can you talk about that a little?
1: Well, this is certainly an issue. I mean, along with the kind of punitive mindset has been a growth in paramilitary police units and a kind of paramilitary ethos within policing that goes far beyond whether or not they're riding around in armored personnel carriers in in tactical vests and this sort of thing. It's, you know, we... The politicians have told the police that they're at war with the public, the war on drugs, war on crime, war on terror, war. you know. And so it's not surprising when police act like warriors, where they treat the people they're policing. And here we're talking about primarily poor people, poor people of color, people of color in general. Um, they are seen as an enemy. And the training has come to reflect this so that increasingly officers are presented with training in which they are shown a variety of scenarios that very quickly and unexpectedly escalate into life-threatening situations. And this has undoubtedly contributed to some of the most tragic killings like James Crawford killed in a Walmart because he had an air rifle in his hand that he had picked up off the shelf to purchase and was immediately killed by a police officer. Uh, Tamir Rice, the 13-year-old, killed in Ohio. Same thing. Get out of the car, see gun, neutralize threat. No consideration of the need to preserve life. No consideration of how to take cover strategic retreat, de-escalation. So would those training tactics make a difference? Yes, I'm sure they would save some lives. Absolutely. And while I am very critical of a training-based approach to the problem of policing, you know, there some training could could make a difference. But it's not going to change that 2.2 million number. It's not going to change the basic posture of police and communities of color, and it's not going to fundamentally address the injustice of the role we've given police in society. And it's certainly not going to do anything about the the slavish adherence to, to austerity and, and neoliberal politics.
0: You write about the possibility and desirability of disarming the police. What might that look like? Obviously, other countries manage to do it. But um, what would that look like here? And do you think we could do it without more broadly disarming American society as a whole?
1: I think there are a lot of steps along the way. So first of all, we should think of it at an institutional level, which is why is it that we use armed police to carry out a lot of the functions that we ask them to carry out? Like chasing loose dogs and patrolling elementary schools. That's just not necessary. It's counterproductive, etc. Why is it that we used armed police to do outreach to mentally ill and homeless people all across the country? We should be doing that work with other kinds of government personnel who don't carry weapons. But also, we need to think about dialing back the militarized hardware that police are using? Why are police bringing AR-15s to protest events? Uh, Why are they serving drug warrants at 5 in the morning for marijuana with automatic weapons and flashbang grenades? So all of that needs to be, you know, really critically interrogated. Are there situations where we need an armed response? Possibly. But my approach is, let's look at all the things that we're doing now as armed police, and let's try to dial that back. You know, in the UK, most officers are not armed, and sometimes they come up against armed and dangerous suspects, and they are rarely killed. Why? Because the perpetrator knows they're not armed, so there's no need to kill them. They can just get away. And we have this mindset that civilization, as we know it, will come to an end if someone gets away, when in fact, the majority of crimes are never even reported to the police, much less result in arrests or anything else. So that's just not true. And there have been numerous incidents of police killing people to prevent them from getting away. From having to accept a traffic ticket or for some kind of, or because there's a misdemeanor warrant for their arrest. And this goes back to this issue that lives don't matter. What matters is authority, coercion, and punitiveness.
0: Overall, in your book, you draw this important distinction between reforms geared toward procedural justice. And those geared towards substantive justice. And I think this is a really important distinction for policing and also in terms of thinking about the criminal justice system as a whole, because looking back a half century or so at the Warren court, and there was this whole rights revolution that delivered these very important reforms related to procedural justice. And I think these are really important reforms, like Miranda v. Arizona, which mandated that police inform people of their right to remain silent and to an attorney. Um, Gideon v. Wainwright, which was about the right to counsel in serious criminal cases. But at the very same time that these procedural—these these rights to procedural justice were, were expanding, any sense that, that, that the judiciary had any concern at all with substantive justice— at all, uh, really, really went out the window. And as a result, we have mass incarceration, which is about the most unjust outcome imaginable.
1: Yeah. So uh, Naomi Murakawa's work is really helpful here because she traces the origins of a lot of these liberal procedural reforms um, that were conceptualized in many ways as an effort to overcome a kind of Reckless, unprofessional, and biased policing that was seen as, you know, racist and abusive in the 50s and 60s, and that contributed to the social unrest of the civil rights movement and the urban riots that follow from that. And the liberal solution to that was to try to professionalize the police and the rest of the criminal justice system to make it rational, professional, to abide by rules that were legally consistent but there was no addressing of the fact that these rules by their nature reproduced racial inequalities or at the very least failed to take into consideration existing inequalities and so what you get is an expansion of the death penalty for instance, under a new, more rigorous and professional rules-based legal strategy. You get an expansion of policing on a whole bunch of fronts. They get new equipment and lots of money, but a lot of that ends up going into SWAT teams and the war on drugs, all of which just reproduce inequality, but do so in a professional rules-based way. And so the police become reconceptualized as the front end of the criminal justice system and therefore, you know, included in a set of laws and regulations. But all of that just feeds into mass incarceration. And none of it directly deals with the legacies of racial inequality and ongoing exploitation of people of color. Uh, by police and by our larger systems. And so until we bring racial and economic justice directly to bear on the functioning of our criminal justice system, we're not going to make progress. And my concern is, is that procedural justice, which is rooted in this idea that's fairly well researched, that if you treat people better in court, in a police encounter, if you communicate clearly. If you follow the proper rules, if you give them a chance to tell their side of the story, they're happier with the outcome, even if they still end up with a ticket or still end up convicted of something. And that's certainly true. But that does not mean that the solution to abusive and overly aggressive and invasive policing is better communication skills for police officers. The solution is to Quit arresting people for drugs. Quit arresting people because they're homeless. Quit putting police in our schools. These are the things that will actually provide some relief to people, especially if they're backed up with robust social programs and restorative justice efforts, et cetera. And so I really chafe every time I hear someone talk about procedural justice because what that often is intended to do is not solve these deeper problems. It's about restoring police legitimacy, restoring community trust in the police. But if all we're doing is restoring the legitimacy of a fundamentally unjust system, then we're just empowering the tools of oppression.
0: Well, Alex Vitale, thank you so much. My pleasure. Alex Vitali is a professor of sociology at Brooklyn College and author of The End of Policing, which just came out from Verso. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once howled out into the wilderness, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our Postmaster General is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And if it's on iTunes, I know this will have the collateral effect of feeding the Apple Borg, but please do leave us a review. They do help put us in front of new listeners, which makes the world a marginally better place. So does telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda on our behalf. And also, of course, last but not least, find us on Patreon.com and toss us some cash. It really does help us keep this thing going.